Welcome everyone, thanks very much for joining us today for this lunch hour um, lecture where we hope to change some perspectives on homelessness. Homelessness is not inevitable and here at UCL we want to change the way we frame homelessness to build public support and political commitment towards ending this. Today is about telling you a bit about our research for, that we've been doing for the last few years but really I want to uh, leave the floor as soon as I can to hand over to these experts who are going to tell you really what we're talking about. So my name is Rob Aldridge, uh, I'm an associate professor here at UCL and today you're going to hear from myself very briefly, Joe, and then from Joe, Stan and James who are going to tell you a little bit more about their experience of um, what we're talking about today, homelessness. What I do in my research is, is really focused on making invisible populations invisible and you know, data can only go so far. Data only tells us part of the problems. It can highlight where the issues are. But really, if we want to change this problem, this enormous problem that we think is a public health emergency, it's a crisis, you need something more than data and you need something more than evidence. And so we've been working towards creating what we think is a social justice movement in inclusion health that aims to prevent and address the extreme harms that we see in inequity. So what's been going on? What are we looking at? Really, inclusion health is a, is a descriptive term that encompasses in the experiences across a, uh, a series of um, experiences that go from homelessness to prison, imprisonment, substance use, that are driven by multiple exclusion factors, such as austerity and barriers in access to services and health services. And that barriers in access to health service and the poor provision of healthcare is one of the things that I focus on in particular. So I have known Stan for a long time and we've been working with him on this particular topic. But for the last five years, we've been doing a study where we've looked at what is happening to people after they're being admitted to hospital, if they've experienced homelessness and they are being seen by specialist homeless discharge schemes. So we undertook a piece of research where we identified and worked with 17 of these schemes from across the country. And we identified a cohort of 4,000 people who were experiencing homelessness at the time of their hospital admission. And by linking their healthcare records and seeing what happened to them subsequently, we were able to understand what is going wrong with our, with our healthcare system, where are the problems, and what can we do about that. And I'm just going to show you one really important brief finding from this study. So <clears throat> this is a group of individuals who've been admitted to hospital, they've been delivered healthcare, and they've been seen by specialist healthcare uh, teams. This is what I want you to imagine. This is a very late stage in their healthcare process. If they're being admitted to a secondary healthcare system, they are very sick at that point. And our data shows that. And we found an extraordinary finding. So of the 4,000 people that we were seen by these homeless hospital discharge schemes, 600 of them subsequently died after that hospital admission. Now, what did they die of? Well, if you read in the lay media, if you read in the press, you'll hear a lot about some of the causes of death experienced by this population. But actually, our evidence showed that it's not just uh, some of the things that you will normally hear about. Actually, this group is dying of the same things that you and I will ultimately die of, of heart disease and of cancer, conditions that we can prevent if we deliver them timely and effective healthcare. Um, and so what we're trying to do now is take this evidence and use it and communicate why this is a problem and what, is this, uh, what are these individuals experiencing and try and change policies in this area. I'm not going to say much more, but just to say, what do we need to do? What does our data tell us? Well, we need to commission, we need to invest in services 
that can look after people experiencing homelessness after they've been discharged from hospital. We know what works already. We know that if you discharge someone to the street, that is not going to help, and yet that happens all too regularly still today. So our research looked at intermediate care schemes. What this means is if you and I go to hospital and we have a broken leg, for example, we can go home and we can recuperate in the comfort of our own home. That isn't an option for everyone. And so what we need to do is commission schemes that can look after people after, they've need, after their acute care uh, requirements have gone. And I'm really pleased to say that the London Mayor has, has that in his strategy right now. And hopefully in London, this will no longer be a situation that we, uh, we face. We need to make the case for social house building and the provision of stable accommodation for everyone whenever they need it. We also need to resist all attempts to further exclusion. So just this weekend, we, we've seen talk about the introduction of voter ID registration. The, the populations we're talking about today are already marginalised. They already have had their voice taken away from them. And the introduction of voter ID registration will just take away that voice further. And we must resist and we must make the case for that being um, not happening. Everyone has the right to dignity and respect. And it is part of our basic humanity to look after this uh, and deal with this problem. I'm going to stop now. And I'm going to hand over to Stan and Joe, who are going to tell you a little bit more about their experiences. My name's Stan Burridge, and until June of this year, I led um, the involvement processes for Pathway, which is a national charity based at UCH, which looked at the healthcare for homeless people. And as was alluded to, um, for a chunk of the last five years, we've been looking at hospital discharges and what happens to people when they, they come off the street. My job, invariably, was to involve people with lived experience and to support them to exercise their right to have a voice and to do it in a safe and constructive way which gave value to it um, and since I've left my role I've gone on and formed my own very small little um, company which I'm continuing to do the same thing so my thing here today is to support Joe in talking about the stuff that she wants to talk about as in line with everything I've ever done and, and the training which I implemented and and, and then delivered for Pathway, it's all done in a very safe way. People own their story, they own their journey, and they can say as much or as little as they want to. So while I'm in conversation with Joe, you may see she's pulling back. And that's fine, that's a signal she doesn't want to go down that road, and that's a decision she makes. You may find that she comes forward and says a little bit more than, you, than, than we expect. But one thing I want you to do throughout the whole process, I want you to have one of three thoughts running through your mind as you're, you're listening to Joe speak, and that is either the most painful experience you've ever had, the most uh, embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you, or the worst thing that you've ever done. And while you're thinking at that, what I'm going to ask you to do at the very end is I'm just going to ask you to run that through your mind and contemplate and think what would it be like for you to stand or sit in front of an audience and to talk about that and you will have some sort of an idea of the journeys that people go to, which is why, in my role, the primary thing I always ensure is that it's safe for people to talk about what they want. And very often, people who say very little actually end up saying the most. So thanks for attending, and I'm just going to kind of uh, start with you. We're going to have this conversation. Um, one of the things that we did when by introducing the involvement processes was to try to help people with lived experience exercise that voice, to bring people on board. 
how can we continue to do it? How can we change the public perspective of homelessness and homeless people in general? Everyone just looks at homeless people and they've got like a stigma, you know, and some people are nice, but there's quite a lot of people out there that are really nasty. It's, I've been, I've had my sleeping bag set on fire while I've been in it. I've been weed on while I've been in it. You know, I've been kicked in the face and spat at and told to F off back to my own country, even though I was born in Plumstead. You know, so uh, people's attitude does need to change and it takes one person to make that change because if one person can do it, others will follow. It may take a bit of time, but they will end up following following but that. You said, you said that one person can begin to make that change. Yeah. If you were to say, here's a toolkit for that person to make that change, what would you give them in that toolkit? What would you say, you need this to carry that change forward? What would you, what would you ask them to do? Basically, you need courage to start off with when you're homeless, because when you're homeless, you're in a rut. I was on drugs as well at the time. I've been keeling off of drugs now for a year and a half. I'm not even on methadone anymore. I took myself off that at Christmas. You know, because I wanted my life meant something to me. And a lot of homeless people give up because they're where they're looked at as scum. That is what sorry. they believe they are. Really sorry. You know, it's like people's attitudes, they, they do make... When, you, people, when you're getting told that you're scum, that's what you think you are. You know, it's like I never lost my morals when I was homeless. No matter how hungry I was, I never stole nothing. If I couldn't afford to pay for it, I didn't get it. It's like I went down to five stone in weight. And, like, I'm, I'm, I've always been a big girl, you know, before that. It's like I've, I've seen my feet for the first time in, like, 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> You know. Was it was it more death by sandwich than most things though, isn't it? I think that's what yeah. yeah. But I did go for the toasties though. <laughs> See, that's a moral stance, you know. I'm not going to have just bread. I want you to toast it for me. Yeah. I think that's that's a pretty fair thing. You know, it's got to be toasties. You know, and with a cappuccino as well. <laughs> I was like, but you've got to be careful as well when you're homeless. It's like I've been drugged by someone that's bought me a meal. And. It's, it's dangerous for a woman on the street, you know, but if, like, one person was to go up to someone and turn around and say, let me help you, and that person is willing for them to help them, that is a start. You know, even, like, befriending someone, taking them some clean clothes, it's, it's, it's like, wonderful. It's like... I couldn't believe that one night Lee Mead from Casualty came down with two big suitcases from the Casualty, oh, Hobby City Department, sorry, and gave us all clothes rather than throw them away. Things like that make a difference to people. I'm going to really chuck a spanner in, right? Because we often hear um, stories from the uneducated. I will say that being polite, if you forgive me, you'll understand why. That by giving people food and giving people clothes keeps them on the streets. Mm. What do you say to that? By giving people food, 
is showing that you care. Giving people clothes is showing that you care. Having someone walk around in the same clothes for, six, for four or five months, you know, you get abuse because they're dirty, they're smelly. But if someone can do that, that makes a hell of a lot of difference. Before I move on to the healthcare thing, because I'm, 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 you know, so I want to congratulate you on becoming clean and, and getting yourself um, off the methadone as well. And I think it's, I think it's fair to say that I think that is a huge challenge for anybody. So just, I'd like to so show just some, some, you know, kind of appreciation for for that. I think that is, you know, congratulations. I, I'm also. It kind of leads very nicely into. Um, you know what you what you the second part of this this conversation we was looking at we can talk about your hospital admission and what happened on that journey um as i think the, you know the hobby city thing and also the kind of the healthcare element i think you know as much as you can as much as you'd like to um talk, talk just talk through that journey go from the what put you in hospital and then go through to your discharge take as much time as you want they ain't got jobs saturday afternoon about, about half past 12. I was coming out of the park. I was at the top of the stairs of Villa Street, you know, or in Victoria Park in Bowie Banquet Station. So at the top of the stairs, next thing I get punched straight in the side of the head. I'm on the floor, he's kicking me with steel toe cap boots, and he's cutting me with a dirty knife at the same time. Going through my pockets, all he got was 13 pound and a mobile phone with no credit, like a 10 pound mobile phone. I ended up collapsing because of it, because I literally ended up running. No one even come to my help. I could see people's feet that far away from walking past my head as I'm in a ball. And I ended up collapsing because I caught sepsis and strep from the knife. So I lost my finger over it. So I've only got the three fingers now. Uh, they managed to save the thumb on this end. They managed to save my arm. I've got a scar going all the way down now. I've got a scar from my hip to my kneecap. I spent 42 weeks in St Thomas's Hospital learning how to walk again. And then I spent another 13, 14 weeks in UCLH Hospital and had to learn to walk again now. Because it's turned into septic arthritis. It's all in every single joint of my body. It's like, I know I'm never going to be able to run down the road again. You know, not unless you give me skateboard on this and I can, like, scoot on it. <laughs> <laughs> I have been tempted, believe me. I've even been tempted to let people use this as a wheelchair so I can sit on it, but my feet fall off. <laughs> so, but I ended up in the hospital and I even had some of the nurses refuse to touch me because I was homeless. And, like, when I first got admitted, it was only one doctor because they refused to operate because I was that bad. I had the vicar read me my last rites. And there was one doctor there that said, I said, I'm not giving up. If I can get her fit enough for surgery within 24 hours, will you do it? Because otherwise, after 24 hours, she's dead. And they said, yeah. She sat with me all night to trying to get me ready for theatre. And they got me ready for theatre. So if it wasn't for her, thank you, Anna, I wouldn't be here. You know, and I was on the gutter frame because of the surgery on my hands and my legs and my foot and all that. 
I was told by physiotherapy I was not to use the gutter frame outside of the hospital. You wasn't allowed to use it outside. Well, the hospital discharged me at half past seven on a Thursday, November night, pouring down with rain, with a bag full of medicines, morphine and everything in it. And I couldn't even take the tablets out of the packs because of the operations I'd had on my hands. And I discharged me back to the street. I mean, that's, that's one of the stuff that we've been at Popway and, and we continue to work towards. But just just moving forward a little bit, you also do quite a lot of stuff down at King's now as well, don't yeah. you? You sort of deliver these kind of talks about healthcare and how healthcare needs to change. Yeah. You've taken your experiences and you're, you're shaping that into an education for other people. Yeah. So in your time, you must have heard other stories about other people who've had negative experience. We oh, will yeah. go to the positives in a minute because it's not all bad. Um, but just just without giving any identities away, just give us a kind of snapshot of some of those experiences. Well, I had a friend that used to sleep in a tent under on a Victoria embankment just by the Thames. One night he's in his sleeping he's in his sleeping bag in the tent. Next thing a group of people in suits pick the tent up and throw him in the Thames. And it was only because he was managed to get out the sleeping bag and managed to get the zip that he got out and the police see what had happened and they got to him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be here. You know, and that is... Uh, uh, I mean, the stuff that's happening in hospital for people yeah. was happening in the hospital for people who were homeless. Yeah. And one example I can tell you is that I had a guy who actually was fantastic, a re- he was an older gentleman, and because of a hostel he lived in, when he went into hospital, the first thing they did was look between his toes for Inject- marks of yeah. injections. So injecting sites. Well, in your time of doing the stuff at King's, what kind of stuff have you heard along them sort of lines about how differently people can be treated? Oh, it's, uh, I had a friend that was in hospital. He only had one leg. He's, he was homeless because he couldn't get to his, uh, his, flat, his flat. His flat was on the fourth floor. And he basically walked away from it. So the council turned around and said that he'd made himself intentionally homeless. He was in the hospital. He's got not like but a leg just to there, nothing else. They discharged him back to the street. You know, because they turned around and said, well, you made yourself, you take drugs. But he took the drugs to cope with the pain from losing the leg. Self-medicating. We hear a lot of stories yeah. about self-medicating. Not only people doom and gloom, because you know it's not it's not always always like that. There's some positives as well. Oh yeah, they talk about some positives because I think that that's a good thing to talk about. Too. When I was in St Thomas's, I had one nurse, Lizzie, that works with Misha and all that as well. She used to do my washing for me every every <coughs> week. If I needed cigarettes, she bought me tobacco, and she listened to me. And that made a hell of a difference. She made me feel that I was important. I, no matter what I'd been through, I wasn't something that someone had stood in. I mattered. You know, and if it wasn't for that, for that kindness, I would have just gone back to the drugs and gone back to the street <coughs> and probably be dead by now. We're coming towards the end. We've got very yeah. small small space of time um so we've heard about your journey through we've heard about what caused you to be in there we've heard some negatives and some positives about that i'm going to give you that toolbox again for you to fill it full of little bits for you to 
map out what a good future would be for healthcare and for homelessness in general to try to cure it. Sorry. Um, <coughs> I think everyone should be given, everyone that's homeless, they, they, they've got whether it's a mental health problem or they've come out of prison or they've left domestic violence, or, you know, they should be given a chance. Everyone deserves a chance in life. <coughs> it's down to them if they carry on with that chance. You know, it's like some, Misha and Lizzie gave me a choice and a chance. And this is where I've got to today. And I really think that the healthcare, their attitude needs to change towards homeless people because at the end of the day, every homeless person is still a human being. And I'm going to wrap that up, really, by just sort of suggesting that, for me, I'm an ex-rough sleeper. I've done about 20 years out on the streets, and if you can imagine, and I've, so I've done the whole nine yards, and I've worked in it as well. I think we're suddenly not going to get a whole load of money tipped into the system. It's not going to happen. They've wasted too much of it on Brexit and other crappy policies. So the way to, um, I guess, to start challenging it is to start looking at it on a much more emotional level. And we have to look at each other as human beings. And the fact is that every homeless person's got a brother, sister, mother, father, all these sorts of things going on, the same as everybody else in the room. I think when we view the problem, often we view it as it's something that happens to people over there. And we can't link ourselves into thinking it's going to happen to us. But what we can do is, how would we respond as if it was somebody that we cared about, that somebody that we knew? And start thinking about it in a more sort of emotional level, because that... The charge being led by an emotional is going to far outstrip anything that's been done by finances. I'm sure you'd like to thank um, Joe for speaking in so eloquently in front of this fantastic audience. Um, thanks for your time. Just going to hand over now to James Fuller, who is an expert by experience and peer researcher at the social care workforce in uh, King's College and currently runs his own housing scheme, Shepherd Housing, in Croydon. I'm just going to say, one personal note about James. So James has been involved in the research that we've been doing over the last five or so years that I presented a brief thing about earlier. And um, if, for the researchers in the room, if you are not involving the people that you're researching in your, in your project, James is an example of why you should do that. So we produce these dry statistics, these dry reports, and James is an author in our research papers and has really held my hand in terms of understanding the reality and the fact that there are people behind these numbers and there are experiences behind these numbers. And James, just to, to kind of publicly thank you for that experience and the journey that you've been taking us on. And to, uh, we're going to hear more from you now. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Is that working? Yeah. Um, it is sort of a way match for us. I think, as Dan alluded to, Joe and I are both kings, really. So. Uh, this is a, a first for us. We'll try and behave ourselves. Um, that doesn't help. That's a sort of, um, this a sort of I, I've lived my life backwards. So I did my degree. I, I got that in 2015. And that's a sort of pompous nonsense that self-righteous young graduates tend to produce. Um, but the story behind that was uh, because I'd just done my degree, I read a piece that Michelle Corns, the doctor who runs the um, research unit down, down the road, um, and she was nearly right, but not quite. And because I was so full of myself with all this new learning I'd acquired, um, I decided to write to her and tell her where she'd gone wrong. 
Now, many uh, people in her elevated position would, would just ignore it or write back and say, thank you very much for comments, whatever. Um, Michelle's brighter than that. She wrote straight back and said, well, if you know so much about it, why don't you write the article then? So <laughs> that's how I ended up writing the paper and becoming uh, a peer researcher with, with King's, which I'm inordinately proud of. It's my, the best part of me, really. How did I get there? Well, um, expert by experience, I think it said. Yeah, uh, there we are. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands, but there are a few of you up there probably thinking, well, there's an expert in the room, but they're sitting up here. Um, that's probably true, because my experience and, and is, is as an expert is being profoundly alcoholic, which is um, not the best thing to do if you're trying to set out in life. Uh, it went on for a very long time. I had, in the meantime, a family, two lovely girls. They're both married now and both pregnant at the same time. I'm not sure how that works. Uh, they were always competitive, but boy, one in January, one in February. Um, so they've got on with their lives, and they're, 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 they're happy girls, uh, I think. Um, but yeah, 2010, uh, I had a life in the city for about 30 years, uh, which nearly killed me because I was drinking myself through it. Um, the wheels fell off properly in 2010, ended up very briefly on the street, nothing like Joe's experience at all. Uh, but I went into detox the first time and was released to nowhere. And all detox does is stop you killing yourself by trying to self-abstinence. Um, uh, self you can't do it. It's too dangerous. Because your body then is at that stage is physically dependent to the extent that it will pack up if you just withdraw the alcohol in one go. You can't do it. So you go to detox and they give you a pill which pretends, it, pretends it's alcohol and that gets you off very quickly. But that's all it does. It just saves your life. It doesn't do anything about what next. And what next was they put me on the street. And the council wouldn't help me because I hadn't lived in their borough for more than six months. I'd been for 10 years living in Fulham and Hammersmith. Uh, but they said, well, you've been out of the borough for six months. Go away. We can't help you. So six months later, to my shame, I was back in detox. Shouldn't have happened. It's about £30,000 to put someone like me through detox. It's wicked. I mean, it's wonderful when you're there, but it, uh, it, it, it's, it shouldn't have happened at all. But there's nothing there for me. So when I came back out again, managed to survive for a little bit longer, started to drink again a little bit. By then I was in a drug den in, in uh, um, Askey Road up in Hammersmith, waiting to be told that I wasn't priority need and I had to leave. I had a letter with me. I had four days left. Uh, luckily, a charity picked me up and they had um, a residential rehab down in Streatham, uh, which completely saved my life. And I went in there. Uh, it was full of ex-offenders, people I would never normally have even talked to, let alone known. Um, so a very strange experience, uh, a bit like being back at school, actually, there were about 16 of us, all men living in community. And the one thing we had in common was, was our addiction to substance of some sort, it was either drugs or alcohol, but they're both drugs after all. So um, that, that, that just absolutely did it for me. Got down, got down to that and worked in, um, there's a little day centre up the road called Spires, which I'm hoping you're going to support later on, people. Um, and I was there for nine years. Uh, as an, um, I, I th think I put, I put myself down at that stage as, yeah, as a poacher because the pheasant bit's obvious. That's me out there just doing my thing. Um, because it was a day centre. It didn't have any housing facilities of its own. And fundamentally, if you're not housed, the rest of life is, is it, where are you going to start with it? It's, it's absolutely fundamental, but it's, it's just that. It's rather like detox and, re and rehab. Detox keeps you alive, and then you do the rehab and get yourself in, back into life. 
the same thing applies. I wish we couldn't talk about it as being homeless or unhoused. It's because everybody then is trying to fix a housing problem. It's not a housing problem. It's a human being problem. And it's, it's, I don't know what we do. I don't know what better term there would be for it. But if anybody can think of one, please write to me. Um, because I, I, I had a, a, a young architect who sent me a paper for review last week. And she was asking about how she, what sort of housing she should be building to, to become Architect of the Year for all these homeless people. And how do, we, how do we decide which ones we help and which we don't? And where should we put this homeless year? Oh, please. So I wrote back, and I thought a bit rudely, but I sort of tried to say, you're right up the wrong tree. Um, could you start again or before you try and save the world? Thinking that I wouldn't hear from them again, she'd be very upset. But bless her, to her credit, she wrote straight back and said, yeah, understand, it's very, very complex. If you need a volunteer, I'm happy to come and help you. So I thought, what a great response. <laughs> Didn't think that. Um, so th that was the problem, that I was working in a day centre it, with people who are street homeless. Um, so all the issues that Joe will tell you about, yeah, it's just too, too much of it. Um, but we didn't have any housing of our own, so that's why poaching. I was trying to find places wherever I could, and it's a, a difficult task at the best of times, because nobody wants to house someone who's coming from the street. And even the neighbors who live in the flat next door don't want them. So it, all of that goes on when you get to that point. So in the end, I thought, well, there's only one way thing to do with this and do it myself. So I've set up Shepherd Supported Housing, which at the moment we've got 12. We started in May with one house of four people. We've now got 12 in three houses. They're already full. I need another house. If anybody's got the spare HMO with four beds in it, <laughs> let me know, please. If it's in Croydon, I'll, I'll have it. Um, but we have to pay a premium price to, to, to get those places because the landlords see us coming. They don't want to people like mine in their houses. What is all this? Because I take houses in, in residential roads and living among other people. Well, weird is that? They've only created, committed an offence for which they've served their time and they've come back. Now what? More exclusion, more no, you can't, more doors shut in their faces. And uh, the, the wing law says that, that we're, we are routinely set up to fail, we guys and, and girls, because it, it's, we have to feed this expensive criminal justice system. So the, the system, to their eyes, is designed to put them back in jail, which costs, I think it's £42,000 a year for a standard pr prisoner now. Come on. They do three years. You should give them that money and buy them a flat. It's ridiculous, but it's not about that, of course. We all know that. It's about much, much more than that. But they are the, the cannon fodder, if you like, for that machine. And they know it. And they're not the human beings. And they're not rubbish, as Joe said. You keep telling people they're scum, you're useless, you're an offender, you're a con. What are they going to do? It's, it, we, we have to, to, as a nation, decide that this is crazy stuff. They did some research recently, some guys with neurological people who put the things on your head. You know, and when you see a picture of something, you recognize it, the little flashes go on. And so there was a dog, cat, pig, person, blah, blah, blah. Standard picture of a homeless person, no response at all from 20% of the people doing that test. What does that tell us? Really, come on. Not even human beings on a neurological scale? Something's badly wrong. So we, I house the guys, they're ex-offenders. They range from 23 years old to 52. Uh, do they have substance misuse issues? Pope's a Catholic. Do they have um, mental health or personality disorders? Goes to I tell you what, these, when I listen to the guys, I'm just so full of admiration for them because a modern prison environment, whatever you hear, read in the Daily Mail, is a very, very deeply unpleasant place. 
And if you do less than our bus, shall we say, in your mental health when you go in, you're certainly not going to be when you come out. I'm not being funny. It's a, it's a, it, to try and understand how people survive in that environment is beyond me. But I get them when they come out and hopefully don't want to go back in, house them as quickly as I can, and then say, right, what are you going to do with your life? We're not, we're not your mum, we're not your dad. We can't solve all the, the problems of the world, but we can give you this space and we can support you to go and do what you need to do with yourself. And it's, it's some guys get it very quickly, other guys don't. We're not going to win with all of them. Some of them will end up back in jail. One's already been back to jail once, and he's back now, and he'll be back with us in the next few days. We'll keep going, because that cycle, we have to break it, of people going into jail, coming out, nothing for them. They resort back to the life they know, and then they're back inside. And it's just absolutely round and round and round. And it, we have to put a break on that somewhere. So that's what we're trying to do. It, it won't always work. Some will fail. But I think it, from my experience with all of them um, is what I try and bring to, to, to Kings. And I, I hate these American words, but badass is, is the right one there. Because what, 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 what Joe's done, I think you, you, you've got to see. I mean, it's just, it takes extraordinary courage and guts. I mean, if you think... My ex-offenders, if they've been drug dealing, they, they're having to live in a hostel with me. They're the last thing they want. Treated like a child. All of these people telling them this, that, and the other. How easy. They make, make one phone call, and they've got money, they've got everything else that they need. It's so, so tempting. So it's like me. Every day I have to remember not to drink. Not a good idea. It doesn't suit me. <laughs> um, but they have to do the same every day. I mean, the courage that they show when they're in our houses is quite magnificent. And the response simply to housing the guy, remembering his name and treating him like a human being. That's all we do. We're experts in just being fellow travelers, frankly. That's, that's all we are. Um, and, I, and I think that's, that's important because the empathy that I can achieve with these... I've never been to jail, but I know all about substance addiction. So I know that world. I was on the street for a mercifully short time. I was in hospital lots of times while I was on the street, or, or homeless, technically. And as Joe said, you get an astonishing response from the, from the health carers. Whereas recently in January, I got knocked off my scooter by a lorry, and he bust my leg in three places. So I'm back in the same hospital, the different treatment. So in the one, I'm still the same person. But there's a file on me that's got drinker on the front of it. And the treatment I got in there was astonishingly poor, if I got any at all. But this time, couldn't do enough for me. Same person. And that wasn't my fault. They Maybe, as Joe said, they think it's my fault that I was profoundly, or am profoundly alcoholic. It probably is to some degree. I make choices. I was faced with, with, with as we all are, every day, with, with choices, and I made bad ones. Put my hand up for that. But I can't live in that. That comes with me. That's part of my history. But it's not getting anywhere. And one of the great things about when people do get into recovery, and it's a common thing, not just Joe and I, you do have this strong sense that you want to do something with this. It's happened. It's happened. Can't do anything about it. What can I do to make it useful? What can I do to go forward? It's a, it's a great, powerful force. And a lot of places you'll find people who are uh, particularly volunteering work and that sort of thing. They've all had what we call a life, or most of them. Very rare to find someone who has no experience. And I'm not criticizing anybody, because we all live in these tiny little bubbles, don't we? And, and, and it's enough to just keep going in that. So why would you know, understand about any, any of this at all? Except that you are a member of the human race, and whatever the neurology says, 
We're human beings, all of us, ex-offenders, whatever they've done, don't care. If that person is trying to change, we should all be there hugging them, congratulating them, and helping them to move forward, not saying, you're a con or you're an alcoholic, go away. It, it, it just doesn't make sense, to, to me at least, for us to come to that conclusion. I don't know why we've done it. We've got, we live in a very selfish world now. We know that. It's all about me. Really? Who's happy? Nobody. But we're forgetting that we're part of this wider world. And it's so, so important that we come back to that. And to smaller communities. We've, we were conned. Big government got, got big by telling everybody, we've got it covered. The police, we've got it covered. Uh, health, training, education. They haven't got any of it covered. It's too big and it's too expensive. But we all, oh, I don't bring up my child. And I'm not parenting because that's a school's job. Generations of people believe that. So we, we, we've passed that, we've given that authority to people who've pretended they can do it, and they can't. Government needs to be honest with us and say, listen, you need to go back to local community because we can't do this. I mean, I, in, in, yesterday, a journalist jumped into our office for some reason. She just read the stats that said, uh, on the scale of, of poverty, uh, Bencham Lane, where my office is, in Front Road next door and a few others, are number one. Uh, so that's the top 10 worst places in the whole country for poverty. And she said, what do you think the cards could do to help with that? Well, first thing is, as of last week, they've, they've stuck um, parking permit permits all up and down those straight those roads. So people with no money now have to find money to park their little cars if they can afford one. Uh, how does that make sense? Uh, how can the local authority help? Well, not doing dumbass things like that for a start. I mean, <laughs> Simple. But it's, it is crazy. So we have to go back to neighbor, self, self and those around. Thatcher was wrong. There is such a thing as society. And we're it. And we have to remember that. And our neighbor is our neighbor. And what does that mean? Whether it's somebody on the street or some rich person in a suit. Right. Who chucked who? So um, that's what I'm up to. And uh, we're on to the acknowledgements. There's the wonderful Dr. Corn. That's the reason that we're all here. And thank you very, very much for listening. Thank you. I think we've got time for a couple of questions. If, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes, if, if people are willing to answer them. Does anyone have any questions? Well, so, so many questions. And uh, thank you very much indeed for a fascinating uh, uh, tour through this uh, area that I think many of us uh, only really observe on television or at a distance, and I think it's, you know, it's really important to... Uh, 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 and thank you for putting this on. Um, so and one question of, of potentially many is, is around, you know, the pra you know we, we have sort of skirted around a little bit, I think, the, the practical solutions to some of these very specific problems. And I was very interested when you said uh, that the problem isn't housing, it's, it's people and how you... Um, and, and because to me, uh, the obvious solution, uh, it, it's not even expensive, you know, and when you think about all the things that we spend money on, uh, it feels like this is a very solvable problem with not much money through um, pretty obvious housing solutions. So I was really interested when you said the problem is not so much housing because you could, you could probably do that. And I would be interested if you'd sort of just expand on that and see how you would make this work. 
that, that's a, a super way of putting it, and it, that is the, the, the key to it all. And, and I think it, it, it's that the, the political will. Uh, I mean, there's some wonderful work being done in, in Manchester. Good heavens, in Finland, where they smaller country, I totally accept that, and it would never happen here because we're far too selfish, but they, over a period of 20 years, as a nation, decided that they would, that uh, being housed permanently is a human right. Simple. And they went to work and they got together the, the necessary funding or whatever. They built what they did, what they needed to integrated in the community. So there's two, three blocks of flats. The middle one has got people in there. The other two, they've all bought their own homes. But integrating people that way. And they now, I went, was at the Finnish uh, amb ambassador's residence the other day, and they said as of the end of last year, they have no street homeless in Finland at all. None. So it is doable. Mm -hmm. So, but there has to be political will, there has to be the funding, which can't all be government, it needs to be that what they did there, they have a huge trust that they created, which is partly government, it's partly corporate, it's partly individuals, but everybody chips into that, willingly, it's not, it's not a tax or anything, and in that way, over that time, they have managed to, to, to build the necessary infrastructure and to create the, the, the rest of it, the education, the learning, the, the jobs and so on and so forth, to enable people to rejoin society, not, not put them somewhere else, and, and them, that's all gone. So it is doable. What we have is these governments here and in parts of other Scandinavia, I'm afraid, as well, where um, I think it's the technical term is residualization, awful word to say, um, which is basically governments deciding we're not paying for poor people anymore. So however, which way we can do it, we're, we're, we're going to chip, 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 chip. I mean, our funding now is under threat. I'm paid by uh, Croydon Council under housing benefit because support housing is one of the few areas they still administer. But we're already, we know that they're going to be what they call changes. Whenever government these days changes, they mean cuts in funding. So we're a bit anxious for next year ourselves. But that, there is a, a, a deliberate policy, clearly, to stop spending money there. The government dogma is that every man-jack of, of us has to be economically active in one way or another. That's their goal. Doesn't matter what it is or for how long you're working or indeed whether that generates enough income to live. As far as they're concerned, that means we can say we've got X amount of employment, aren't we marvelous, and people believe them. But then you've got nurses and, and other gifted, gifted, wonderful, dedicated people going to, to food banks. How does that work? So there's a game going on, but it's a, it's a very nasty game whereby government's decided we are going to eliminate poor people because we can't eliminate poverty. This is very, very dangerous stuff that they're engaged in at the moment. Look at the way they're making... Oh, the local estate agents, for example, in Croydon, it's a, it's a cash society. We're hand-to-mouth down there. We don't have credit cards and wage slips of three years to, that you can present to, to um, a big estate agent as, you know, countrywide or somebody because they want this and that and the other. These guys don't have it. So the little agents who work with landlords who will deal with people on benefits and so on and so forth, government now said, well, you can't charge any, any fees you say agents, and by the way, we want £4,000 for you to register for what you're doing. Most of them got out of business already. What a surprise. If they're not there, how does a poor person get themselves a house? Do you see what I mean? It's Let's talk about perception as well. Very, very simple mathematics, really. I mean, I think I heard the first quote, quote from Aidan Halligan who said that nothing will ever change unless you uh, wed it to a rigorous economic framework. 
Um, and you're given, yeah, it does work. Yeah. you're given, um, I can't hear myself, sorry. Yeah. Must be the water that got into my ears and none of yours. Yeah. <laughs> Gorgeous yeah. lot. Um, perception. I live in a council flat. I mean, as I said, I'd been street homeless. And it's the perception that that gives is that I'm, my housing is somehow subsidised by all of you. Well, I'll give you the simple mathematics. I've lived in it for 13 years. I've paid for my rent, from my pocket, from my working, for the majority of that. That's more than I could have bought for it, paid for it to buy it from the local authority, which would have taken it away from the public purse. So I'm on the second stint of doing that, and if I keep liking what I'm doing, I'll probably end up paying it again, and then put me cork, and you can get the whole thing back to start the process again. Now I ask you, who is subsidising who? And secondly, just a, it harks back to the initial thing around sale of council stock. That was implemented that every Englishman was the term I think that was used, should have his own castle. And it went even more sinister than that. If you don't have your own castle, you're a leech. And that sets society against each other, the haves and the have-nots. And I think at the end of the day, I don't aspire, I don't want to own a piece of land. I don't want to. I want to work and pay for the piece of land on a rental basis only, and I will give it back to you when I'm finished. And I think there should be an acceptance of that. It doesn't make me less of a human being because of that. And I think that that's what we need to perceive. And I think if you're going to change perception, if you're going to start um, looking at things in a much different way, then, as I said initially, you have to do it on a more emotional level. Yeah. That's the deal. That's the real deal. I'm afraid we're going to run out of time. But James, Stan, Joe, thank you so much for your, for your honesty. Thanks for educating everyone and for telling us how, you know, we need to look after each other and we need a greater sense of humanity. Thank you all for coming. I just want to say, well, sorry, there's one more thanks. To, uh, that actually, behind all of this today is the Lunch Hour Lecture team and also a group of UCL researchers who are sat here at the front and led by Santiago here who um, put this event together today. So thank you all very much for coming. I hope we've changed some perspective today um, and I hope be between us we can start to change the experience of everyone on, um, out there. Thank you very much. <laughs>